I once asked my guru, Roy Eugene Davis, if he ever felt the weight, the responsibility of his role, you know, being Satguru and spiritual leader. And he said, um, no, I have always known I am not the doer. And uh, even though I know I'm not the doer, I still get nervous before these. So I thought maybe we could breathe together. Would that be okay with everybody if we just took a moment to breathe together? Okay, let's do some even count breathing. Let's take our meditation posture, upright, fixed, firm, and comfortable. That's all the Patanjali Sugar Sutras say about it, fixed, firm, and comfortable. And let's take a deep breath in and exhale. Let it go. And breathing in for four counts and exhaling for four counts. Breathing, inhaling for one, two, three, four. Pause and exhale for one, two, three, four. And pause. Inhale for one, two, three, four. Pause and exhale for one, two, three, four. Inhale for one, two, three, four. And exhale for one, two, three, four. Last time, inhalation, one, two, three, four. And pause and exhale for one, two, three, four. Take another breath in and let it go. Let's do that one more time. But this time, instead of paying attention to the inhalation and the exhalation, pay attention instead to the pause between the breaths, that moment when you are breathless. Okay? So sitting upright, inhaling, breathing in for one, two, three, four. Exhaling. One, two, three, four. Inhaling, one, two, three, four. Exhaling, one, two, three, four. Take a last deep breath in and let it go. When we practice that pranayama, it's one of the most fundamental and and, uh, first pranayamas we learn even count breathing, and we pay attention to the pause between the breaths because when we are breathless, we are also thoughtless. And so when we are alert and awake in that split second between breaths, we experience alert thoughtlessness. And it is a very good practice to learn what it feels like and what it seems like when the mind is quiet. So that's why we practice that as our first pranayama. So I have, my talk today is the overview of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I have 60 minutes to go over 196 sutras. So that's 3.266 sutras per minute. So you all better buckle up because here we go. Okay, we're going to take our time. I'm going to do a general overview today. And I think it's important to give us the big picture of what the Yoga Sutras is about. It's easier for me to take apart the Yoga Sutras if I understand their flow and their format and where they go from and to, okay? So in that light, giving the foundation, I'm going to open up the floor for discussion. 
but we're going to do it in a controlled way. If you have questions, if you put them into the chat room, Pascal is moderating the chat room. So I think it's important before we begin to discuss the historical value of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Just briefly, it was the first time in history that the mystical arts were taken out of the hands of the mystics and a um, philosophical, pragmatic, step-by-step approach was given to us. First time in history. So it allows us to take our liberation in our own hands. That was very, very important. So the Yoga Sutras are about what is referred to as Parinama Chitta. That means transformation of consciousness. So it allows us the practical tools, it empowers us with the knowledge to transform our own consciousness. This has been referred to as the science of, by Yogananda, self-realization. And it's called Parinama Chitta, transformation of consciousness. So before we begin, we're talking about yoga. And I thought I might actually define yoga for us, because you'd be surprised. Nowhere in the Yoga Sutras is yoga, the word yoga, actually defined. It is assumed we know what the word yoga is. And I'm always surprised because I go out into the world and I talk to yoga people and they don't know what yoga is. They don't know what the word means. In the West, when we talk about yoga, we usually mean three distinct things. The first thing we mean when we talk about yoga is this hatha yoga. Is everybody familiar with hatha yoga? Hatha, forced flow, forced flow yoga. That is that series of asanas practice. Asana, the term asana, comes from the Sanskrit word as. As means to sit. More importantly, it literally means to sit quietly. Nowhere, you may be surprised, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is the word hatha even mentioned. There is no discussion of asanas in the Yoga Sutras except under the section of Ashtanga Yoga, eight-limbed yoga, where all it says about your dhyana asana, meditation posture, is upright, and or fir, fixed and firm, sthira, and comfortable, soka. That's all it says. Other than that, hatha yoga doesn't exist in the Yoga Sutras and probably didn't exist in this form when they were written or codified. The second way we use the word yoga is to mean from the root yuj, meaning to yoke, union. It is often used synonymously with samadhi, but there is an argument to be made that they are not synonymous, but for this sake of argument, we'll say they are. That is union, union with the observer, with that which he or she is observing, or seer and the seen, similar to samadhi, union. The last way we use yoga contextually in the Yoga Sutras is as a system of practices, ontological system of practices and procedures. Ontological means the study of one's own being. So here we have codified In 196 short truth statements known as sutras or aphorisms, the step-by-step procedures on how to liberate ourselves. And the question becomes, liberate ourselves from what? Well, in Samkhya philosophy, we learn that we are liberating ourselves from suffering. That is the reason the Yoga Sutras were encoded, so that we have the steps we need to liberate ourselves from suffering. That word is called dukkha or dukkham. The first pada is the samadhi pada. Samadhi, in this case, means two things. There are 51 sutras in the samadhi pada. Samadhi here means either putting it all together, 
which would make sense in the first pada, wouldn't it? Or it means this idea of joining with the seer and that which is seen. So samadhi is, in another way, this blissful state they refer to. What may surprise you to find out is in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there are no less than between eight and ten different kinds of samadhi. There is no singular description of the word samadhi. Again, it is not defined in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Asamprapti, samprapti, bija, nirbija. There are uh, sabhikalpa samadhi, nirbhikalpa samadhi, all used differently. And we're not going to cover them too intensely. But just so you know, there are listed as many as 14 stages of samadhi. In Yoga Sutras, we talk about at least 12 different stages and eight different kinds of samadhi. Okay, so what we're going to do, Mr. Rosen did something really interesting this morning. In the old days, when yogis taught and gurus taught the Yoga Sutras, they would chant the Yoga Sutra first. And then they would take that Yoga Sutra into meditation where they would, quote, divinely contemplate it. After a little while, the teacher would bring them out of their meditation on that, and then they would discuss what the realizations they had. If the guru was happy with the realizations, they'd move forward. If they weren't, they would do it all over again. So I thought today we might try to see what it feels like to chant a couple of these sutras, these real simple sutras. So we're going to chant just one and two together. So, Pascal, would you bring up that very first slide for me, please? That's not it. Uh, that's here. We, yeah, here we go. So here's the first slide. That is Atta Yoga Anushasanam. Can everybody say it with me? Ready? Atta Yoga Anushasanam. I can't hear you. Let's do it again. Atta Yoga Anushasanam. Now yoga instruction. Pretty simple, right? You'd be so shocked how many pages and pages of commentary are written on this very first sutra. But there are pretty much two ways we interpret this. Roy Eugene Davis interpreted over the years in two different distinct ways. The first way is now, comma, that preliminary studies have occurred. And the reason that's important is because, as I told you already, no single word is defined in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Everything is used contextually. So a preliminary study of yoga becomes very, very important. The other way Mr. Davis described now was, now is an auspicious time to begin. We all have buckled up our seatbelts and we're ready to go. So let's do it one more time. Atta yoga anushasanam. Did everybody do it? Good job. Let's go to the second sutra. That's Pada 1, Sutra 1. Let's go to the second sutra, Pada Pada 1, Sutra 2. This is the most iconic uh, sutra in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Of the 196 sutras, this one is the most often quoted, and it's the most often misinterpreted one. I have seen as many as 32 different interpretations of this. Some of them are crazy, you know, in the stillness of icy silence kind of stuff. Let's do this together. Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda. That's pretty, isn't it? So this is what the first two sutras sound like when they do them and they chant them. Atta yoga nushasanam, yoga chitta vritti niroda. You can see there's this sing-song equality about the yoga sutras. And this indicates that it's possible that it was an oral tradition long before it was written down. Okay, This is the single most, I think, important sutra for us to understand. So we're going to spend some time just on this yoga sutra. 
most of our hour is going to be spent on the first two padas because that's where all the meat is, uh, the heart of it, the vegetarian meat of it is, at least. So we know what we're going to look at. This, the third and fourth pada are more philosophical. We'll talk about them, but we're going to spend a lot more time today on these first two padas. Yoga, we've talked about that. Yoga can mean two things, can it? It can mean union, synonymous with the word samadhi, but it also can mean this process, doesn't it? So let's look, look at this last word. You see that last word, niroda? Niroda means arrest or restrain, to arrest or to restrain. But it also means the process of arresting and the process of restraining. So yoga, both union and the process of yoga, is the process of and the restraining of the chitta and the vritti. Here's this word chitta. Its root is chit, meaning to perceive. Roy Eugene Davis described it as the individualized field of awareness. I really like this idea that chitta is a field. And the reason I like it so much is because Yogananda described chitta as an uh, integrated word meaning manas, from the word manas meaning thinking pr- principle or mind, the buddhi. The buddhi is this intuitive intelligence. Prana, the most refined particle of energy from which all other energy is derived. That prana, we refer to it as life force, but life force really doesn't do it justice. And then last of all, ahamkara. You've heard that term this morning already, or asmita. Ahamkara literally means I am-ness, this false sense of a separate self. All this is bundled into that single word chitta. Okay. Then let's look at this word. Hey, Michael, Michael yeah. sorry, there's a question in the chat box for you. So we're going to answer questions between potas, unless you think that's important, I should answer it. Okay. No, just let me know when you're ready. All right. Does this need, do I need to answer that to clarify what I'm talking about right now? Well, it might be good. Oh, okay. Let's take a look. Is pada and sutra synonymous? The same question mark. I'm sorry, pada means quarter. There are four quarters in the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras are split up into four quarters. So pada is a kind of chapter. Okay, so there's four quarters. Sutra literally means thread. So each one of these Yoga Sutras are threads of union. Threads, steps that leads, uh, lead us to union. Yoga Sutras, threads of union. Okay. I should have done that. I apologize. That should have come first. Let's talk about this word vritti. The word vrit is the uh, root of the word vritti, and it means literally to whirl. Sometimes you'll hear vritti described as whirlpool, but that's not right. It's not good. It's this idea that the vritti, there are five of them. We stand in the middle of a storm, the eye of the storm, and around us swirls all this information, these states of awareness that we have. Vritti refer to the way we take in and process information, our states of awareness that are constantly changing and modifying. That's what vritti is, and it is a part of manas, the mind. So there are five kinds of vritti. They are, first of all, we can take in and process information correctly. Second of all, we can take in and process information incorrectly. Thirdly, we can take in information 
and they, what they refer to as conceptualize it. That is, build castles in the air. We can imagine, we can, we can fantasize. All that is very much uh, only in the human world. Okay. The third way we process information is, of course, in our sleep. A lot of our organizing of our mind and the information we take in happens during while we sleep. And the last way they say that you take in information and process it is memory, recalling events of the past. All these are vritti, and all of these are constantly moving and modulating all the time. And by the way, it isn't one vritti or another. Often we can take in and have both of them. For example, we can take in information and perceive half of it correctly and the other half incorrectly. And not only that, the Yoga Sutras say there are two states of each one of these vritti. It refers to klista or aklista, afflicted or non-afflicted. So we have all these states of awareness happening. All this is swirling around us at the same time while we, the soul, stand in the eye of the storm. Okay? So yoga, chitta, vritti. Yoga is the process of restraining and arresting the chitta and the vritti. In other words, we learn to restrain anything within our field of awareness that is moving. When we achieve this state of silence, absolute silence, yoga, union, dawns in the organ of intelligence. And the last thing I'm going to throw that in to confuse you even more is to describe buddhi. Buddhi, this intuitive intelligence, which is within chitta, that is the window through which the soul realizes self. This is how we are aware of, aha, I am that. So we have to make sure that window is clean. Roy Eugene Davis had a really brilliant way of describing yoga, chitta, vritti, niroda. We have a pond here at CSA. And he described it as there is a light at the bottom of the pond. And if the pond is full of debris and moving, we cannot see the light at the bottom of the pond. This is ordinary states of awareness. Okay, But if we just sit and wait, alert, awake, dynamic, eventually all that debris in the pond settles. And when all that debris in the pond settles, the light at the bottom of the pine, pond shines out. And we say, oh, there's the light. Aha, the light. Okay. The other part of yoga is the process of cleaning out that pond so that the debris no longer floats after a while. Right. So yoga is both union and the process, letting the debris settle and cleaning out the debris so that it can't float around anymore. So, in other words, we practice yoga to experience yoga. <laughs> Does that make sense to everybody? OK. So <clears throat> let's move to the third sutra. Oops. Back one. There we go. Here is the most missed sutra of the Yoga Sutras. Here in Pada 1, Sutra 3, is the definition of self-realization. Here it is right here. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones because the first word is ta-da. <laughs> ta-da svarupa vastanam. Ta-da means then. Sva. Here's this word sva. You want to say it together? I see Barbara saying it. Tada svarupa vastanam. Nice, right? Then sva. This sva word, it means swami. The word swami comes from this. Sva is a reflexive pronoun 
it mean one it means one's own self okay or atman the soul rup means form vastanam means abide in so self realization is when the soul abides in its own form isn't that brilliant so when all that debris is gone the only thing left is the light of the soul and later on we'll see in two different places the yoga sutras say that illumination happens when the mind is as pure as the soul or another way it says it later on is when 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 sattva guna is as pure as the soul illumination dawns in the organ of the mind okay so there's this sense that i want to talk to you about there is nothing we can do to make illumination happen roy always talked about we are preparing the way for illumination and here in this yoga sutra we talk about how we're cleaning that pond right it's like we're cleaning our house because a guest is coming and in the indian adage the guest is god okay so we're not trying to make anything happen the minute we try to make something happen the ego kicks on and then there's a further sense of distance between ourselves that which we are the soul and the truth of our being that we are at the core existence being okay so then the yoga sutras go on afterwards they discuss all the vritti which i did and then it goes on to describe how we can achieve believe it or not it does not describe how we can achieve self realization the entire first pada describes how we can achieve clarity of mind and steadiness of mind because again when the mind is as pure as the soul illumination dawns so the rest of the first pada describes what gets in our way of experiencing clarity of mind and gets in our way of dis- of experiencing steadiness of mind okay and they talk about first of all the obstacles that get in the way and they list them they refer to the obstacles and the accompanying distractions that go with them and there are nine obstacles and if anyone has ever been on the spiritual path you recognize at least four of these i'll bet you sickness dullness doubt doubt is a big one i often talk to people who aren't sure they're on the right path kind of thing carelessness laziness addiction the word they actually use is addiction to the senses so being overly involved with with uh, your awareness going outward not practicing brahmacharya right use of energy false views non attainment of stages i cannot tell you the number of times i heard someone ask roy davis after all these years i still don't feel like i'm moving forward that's a big one in the spiritual world and then instability along with those obstacles the yoga sutras then list what it refers to as the distractions these are the challenges that come with those op- obstacles pain and the word they use is dukkha it's an important word because it's used throughout the yoga sutras dukkha or dukkham it literally means bad axle hole we don't actually have a word in english for that dukkham we translate it as suffering but it's more akin to mental um suffering in latin they have a word uh, dolor in french dolor that is this idea of emotional pain dukkham really has sort of a mental anguish 
side to it more than actually you hurt yourself, like you cut your finger or something like that. Along with the obstacles, we find depression, bodily tremors, unsteadiness of breath. And what they actually talk about is uh, problems with inhalation and problems with exhalation. Have you ever cried? You know, yeah, I'm sure we've cried. When you cry, you've done the, <gasps> right? This unsteadiness of breath that happens when you're distracted and you're in pain and suffering. All these things go with obstacles. All these things getting our way of having a steady and clear mind. So one of the things it requires is steadiness of practice. Being committed to the practice. Remember this morning we learned you have to have repentance. You have to have commitment. And you have to have right practice. All those must be carried out with commitment over time. In other words, you are not going to give up until you've reached the goal. You go all the way, no matter what it takes. Okay. Then the rest of Pada One spends its time discussing how to overcome these obstacles. So in the next slide, we'll see. I've listed them for you. Ways to overcome the obstacles. The first way it mentions is the contemplation of Om. That idea of listening to the inner sound, that's one of the higher ways. We also practice Yoni Mudra or Jodi Mudra, if you've heard that, it's part of our Kriya Yoga tradition. The word it uses in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras actually is an Om. The word it uses is pronouncement, the pronouncement. And it's this idea, and it tells us if we pay attention to the pronouncement, it leads us back to the source. And while it leads us back to the source, by itself overcomes all obstacles. It point blank says that. If you practice the contemplation of Om the way our guru taught us, it is an overcomer of obstacles. One of the most important tools besides Kriya Pranayama that I can talk to you today. The next thing it says is focus on a single principle. Remember, these are ways to overcome obstacles. The term it actually uses is Aka Tattva. That is, practice of oneness. And there are two ways we can interpret this practice of oneness to overcome our obstacles. The first way is this idea of practicing monotheism. And here, monotheism doesn't, it doesn't mean the belief that there's only one God. Monotheism is the realization that there's only God expressing as all things. And it says, practice this. Put it into your mind, divinely contemplating it. Roy taught us how to divine and contemplate. It's, he would say it's not that difficult. You just take an idea or a concept, and he would say, place it on the tableau of your mind in meditation. Just place it there. Don't try to deconstruct it or take it apart. Just place it there. And in the quiet of meditation, look at it, he would tell us, with expectation of discovering. And I remember many times he would say, I often don't have a realization about it while I'm doing it. He would say, I would go about my day, and suddenly, aha, that's what it means. So when you're focusing on a single principle and you want to understand it, just place it on the tableau of your mind and keep it there. Divine contemplation. And then we can focus on what the Yoga Sutras refer to as the stations of Brahma. That is, friendliness, compassion, gladness, equanimity, and joyfulness. And if you think that's easy, pick friendliness for a week and be friendly to every single person in your life, including your family, and see how it goes.
it will help clarify your mind and clean it out like that. It's very challenging. Equanimity under all circumstances, no matter what it's like at work, at home, just pick one, one at a time. Okay, so those are the very first ways it describes to overcoming these obstacles. And then it lists, and in the Yoga Sutras it says, you can do this, and this, and this, and this, and it just lists them. What I want you to notice, I put application of opposites. Roy often talked about applying opposites. That actually doesn't show up until the second pada, but I put it in here, I said the list is all together. The first way is devotion to God. That term is to put God first in Sanskrit. Then we have pranayama. This is a really important one because we're part of the Kriya pranayama tradition, aren't we? So actually we use pranayama as our foremost tool. Kriya pranayama, and we talk about all the things that Kriya pranayama uh, mediate, uh, mitigate uh, karma, uh, quicken spiritual evolution, there is a lot to it. So if you haven't learned the Kriya Pranayama yet, please take the time to find someone who is uh, ordained to do so. The next way to uh, calm the mind, clarify the mind, study it is uh, object-centered activities. If you can focus on something and take your mind off all those problems, you find that later when you go to back to them, they're not so bad. Sorrowless, sorrowless illumination, of course, when we're enlightened, our problems don't seem so bad, do they? Here's the next one that is work, freedom from attachment. That's work. Insight gained from sleep and dreams. Right? And finally, meditation. All these can help us have clarity of the mind so that the light can dawn. And finally, it says, this, is, this mastery of the mind is all-encompassing. So we have to integrate our spiritual practices into everything we do. It cannot be we sit in meditation for an hour or 20 minutes once or twice or three times a day or stick our butts in a pew once a week. It is an integrated practice. We have to read a little, meditate more, think of God all the time. Okay? Sutras 41 through 44 then go on to just describe samadhi all the different states of samadhi. We're not going to go over that today because that's an entire hour all by itself or longer. Okay. And so we're going to take a break. Are there any questions? That's the end of Pada One. I know that's a lot. Pascal, are there any questions from people? No. Okay. All right. So let's go on to Pada Two. Is everybody with me? All right. Pada Two is Sadna Pada. There are 55 sutras. Sadhana is a really interesting word. Um, it has come to mean one's spiritual journey. But one of my favorite definitions of sadhana is literally straight to the goal. That's one of the definitions of sadhana, straight to the goal. And in sadhana pada, it is listed. So the first pada, you notice there was nothing specific that we do. It was all more generalized. Here are the challenges. Here are the obstacles. Here's what yoga is. Here's how to overcome them. In Pada 2, we are given step-by-step instructions on how to overcome those, uh, those obstacles. And Pada 2 is split into two sections. The first section is the Kriya Yoga section. Everybody here should be familiar with the Kriya Yoga section. The second section is referred to as the Ashtanga Yoga section, or Asta Anga Yoga, eight-limbed yoga. 
Okay. So let's talk about this Kriya Yoga section first. In Pada 1, Sutra, Pada 2, Sutra 1, we read Tapa, I'm not going to pronounce this, but in it, austerity, self-study, devotion to God, Kriya Yoga. This word Tapa refers to austerity. If you were here last Sunday, you heard me talk about this. Tapa literally means, its root means to make hot. It suggests we do not do those things. We refrain from doing those things which overheat us. Okay? So we don't eat too much. We don't eat too little. We don't sleep too much. We don't sleep too little. Right? It's the way of moderation. Self-study is the next word. Here's that word sva again. Svadayaya literally means to contemplate oneself. And Roy often told us in meditation, gently inquire, what am I? What am I? One of the most, he said there were three things we should, we should inquire. First of all, what am I? Second of all, what is God? Third of all, what is my relationship with God? This is all part of this self-contemplation, self-inquiry. And then devotion to God. Here this word means literally to put God first. They use the term Ishvara. We're going to use God. We're not, Ishvara is a very complicated word with a long history. And then Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga, Kriya from the same root as K-R, karma, means actions of. Austerity, self-study, devotion to God are the actions of yoga. Okay? Then we move on to Pada 2, Sutra 2. Why? Why are we practicing Kriya Yoga? Well, here it is. The purpose of Kriya Yoga is to cultivate samadhi and attenuate the kleshas. Cultivate samadhi. In other words, prepare the way for God to come and attenuate the kleshas. Here is the first time the word klesha is used. So if you're taking notes, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there are four different things we have to overcome. We've already done two of them, chitta and vritti. We have to learn to restrain those two things. The third thing the Yoga Sutras say that we have to work with are the kleshas. And the fourth thing the Yoga Sutras say we have to work on are the samskara. So here we have the kleshas. This word klesha literally comes from the same root as klist, meaning afflictions. These are referred to as the mental poisonings or afflictions of the mind. And they are fivefold. All right, the first one is avidya of the kleshas, unknowing. It's referred to often as ignorance. I'm not crazy about that word because in the West, that has a real negative connotation. But it literally means avidya, to not know. What we don't know is what we are at the core, the truth of our being. And Roy always told us that this was the core issue from which all other problems come. The second klesha is ego, known as asmita or ahamkara. That is, again, literally a sense of I amness, that false sense of separate self. From ego, that false sense of separate self comes attachment, aversion, and a clinging to the senses, to this world. These are the five kleshas. Is everybody still with me? I know this is a lot. These are the kleshas that we must overcome. And ignorance is the root of all kleshas. 
by the way, it also says something, and that is Klesha Mula Karma. Can everybody say that with me? Klesha Mula Karma. The reason that's important is because all karma has its roots in the kleshas. So if you want to attenuate your karma, address the first of all kleshas, that is, avidya, not knowing. From avidya, all other interaction trappings happen. Klesha mula karma. All karma comes from the kleshas. Okay? They are the cause of all suffering. And it says, the next thing it says is, the kleshas can be avoided by meditation. Meditation is our number one tool to overcome the kleshas. It's the number one tool we use to steady the mind, to bring clarity to the mind. Meditate, meditate, meditate. Then Sutra 12 through 17 is a discussion about karma. The rest of this, up until the Shtanga Yoga section, talks about the nature of prakriti, the nature of nature, and the gunas and karmic involvement. It just discusses how the karma, how we get involved with karma and how it works. Then, starting in Sutra 28 of Pada 2, begins the second section known as Ashtanga Yoga, the eight limbs of yoga. And it says that we practice Ashtanga Yoga to destroy all impurities so that the light of knowledge emerges. And here's what's interesting. Again, it does not say it brings self-realization. It says practicing Ashtanga Yoga leads to discriminate discernment, vivaka. That is, we know the difference between what is real and what is unreal. Discernment, vivaka. So that is why we are practicing Ashtanga Yoga. And then the next slide, it goes into the list, the eight limbs. Yamas, you all are very familiar with this. I'm sure I don't have to spend much time with this. It's interesting because when we get to Pada 3, it does it describes the inner limbs and the outer limbs, but not here in Pada 2. The, out, the outer limbs are Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, and Pratyahara. The inner limbs are Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi. What's really interesting for me is that Always I thought pratyahara, the inward turning, should come first. Whenever I'm practicing pranayama, I have to turn inward first to focus on my breath. But here it says we focus on the breath and then turn inward. But uh, this doesn't list the same in all traditions. Some traditions do list pratyahara first. If you feel the same way I do, it's okay. I turn inward and then focus on breath. If that's the way you do it, great. And then the inner limbs... Here's what you should know about the inner limbs. These dharana, dhyana, and sanadi are not discussed until pada three. So the rest of pada two spends its time on those first five outer limbs. Next slide, please. The yamas are the first. The yamas are, of course, the restraints. Well, there's what restraints? Roy called this the outer part. The yamas were the outer. Uh, niyamas were the inner. They are social restraints. If we look at this, they tell us how to behave. The first one is ahimsa. I'm going to just do just one of these. Ahimsa is one of my my favorites because it comes from the word han, which means to strike. Ahimsa literally means to not strike. 
And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, here's what's really interesting. It says, if you harm or if you cause harm to happen to others, whether you do it or not, the karma is the same. So this idea that people manipulate other people as though they were pieces on a chessboard, the Yoga Sutras are quite clear that violates the principle of ahimsa. Okay, so it's striking out in both mind and action at the same time. And it's causing others to strike out in mind and action at the same time as well. And then we're just going to cover one other today, and that's satya. Satya is one of my favorite Sanskrit words because it's interpreted usually as truthfulness. But it literally means satya, to exist in truth. It has the sense of authenticity about it, coming from the core, what we are at the core. This is where we should always come from. We should realize the divinity within us and the divinity within others at the same time and come from that place. And in other words, pranam, not acknowledging the divinity within both ourselves and others. The next one are the niyamas. Niyama is observances. Here we have, what are we observing? We are observing self-discipline. Roy referred to the as the inner ones. We have saucha, S-A-U-C-A. Many people say saucha. It's saucha. Saucha. Samtosa, contentment. Tapas, austerity. Notice these last three. Are these familiar to you at all? They're the same as Kriya Yoga. Tapa, Svadaya, Ishvara, Pranidhana. Okay? Austerity, self-study, devotion to God. So here we have that Kriya Yoga, actions of yoga, reiterated under the Niyamas. Okay? So then Sutras 35 through 46 talk about what the results are of mastering the Yamas and the Niyamas. They spend the whole time doing that. And then sutras 47 through 51 talk about asana, pranayama, and pratyahara. And what we talk about when we talk about asana is all it says is it's fixed, firm, and comfortable. That's all it says. It does say something interesting, though. It says if you can master your asana, all polarity ceases to exist. Right? The gunas stopped being effective when you master asana. Isn't that interesting? So learning to sit, regardless of how you feel, whether you feel like it or not, or you want to, or your body hurts, learning to sit still for a prolonged period of time masters any sense of opposites getting in your way. Okay, all polar opposites. And then the next slide, here is the near last one. It talks about something really interesting. It does not talk about mastery of anything as important as pratyahara. This idea of mastering, pulling the senses away from the outer world, turning inward. That mastery is the single most important thing mentioned in Pada 2. And it says that coming from mastery of pratyahara, inward turning, comes the splendor of wisdom. We can shut off all the senses dissolution of the gunas happens all polarity ends sattva rajas tamas one gains control of breath absolute control of breath and the covering of light any sense of separation is dissolved and sure enough fitness of mind happens okay here ends the next ones are just and it says from this practice 
comes utmost command of the senses. We become self-contained, capital S, right? We have control over what's going on within us and how we behave, okay? Any questions about Pada 2? Are we good? Okay. Pada 3 moves on. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on Pada 3 and 4, mostly because Pada 3 is about the cities, the powers we acquire. We're going to talk about a little bit. Vibhuti literally means that which extends far. Its root is bu, meaning to become. And it implies that through the austerities, we become this glorious form. That's what they refer to. The interesting thing about Vibhuti is it's always also the sacred ash of India. So it has this implication that if you want these cities, this power, you must burn the ego in the fires of wisdom, right? The ash has to happen, okay? There are 55 sutras, and they pretty much talk about the powers. What we're going to talk about is this second part, how we gain those powers, if we can mix to the second one. We gain those powers through what is known as samyama. Samayama is a kind of samadhi. It is a combination of the last three, concentration, meditation, and samadhi. That is samyama. What's the difference? It's pretty tough to tell the difference between samadhi and samyama. The difference is, according to the scholars, samyama is a kind of samadhi, but instead there is no sense of I amness. It's concentrating on an object, like light. And then instead of I am light, There is no sense of I at all in samyama. There is only light. And from that acknowledgement, no sense of I at all with an object comes absolute or perfect concentration and utter knowledge. From that comes all these powers. Okay. Some of the powers are Yogananda used to practice the one where he would make himself um, heavy as as a, no one could move him. That's one of the powers that are less. Okay. Here in the third part, it says, when sattva guna is as pure as the self, there is kaivalya. Kaivalya, that is actually the title of the last pada. So we're moving into the last pada, kaivalya pada. Kaivalya means absolute unity or perfect isolation. It's this idea that there is no sense of self at all. Really interesting, when Gainamada passed, they asked Yoganandaji, uh, where is, is Gainamada now? And he said, Gainamada is no more. All sense of an individualized self had dissolved. Only spirit, universal spirit was left. She had uh, gone past all other forms into this unmanifest field again. And it implies that we are returning to the origin, that there is no self. It's only 34 sutras. Pretty much it's all about philosophy, high-level Kaivalya, what is it about, how we achieve it. It does, it is here, next slide though, that we learn about something called samskara. Samskara are these subtle mental impressions that occur that are left over in the mind from all thoughts, intentions, and actions. So here we are, we are overcoming the chitta, the vritti, the klesha, and finally the samskara. Here are all in a package in the Yoga Sutras, what we need to clarify and overcome, okay? And it says that if there are any remaining samskaras left, it's possible to have rebirth. And what that triggered with me when I remembered is the story in Autobiography of Yogi, 
when Lahiri had to experience his palace, even though he was so evolved, still there was this last samskara left over. And Babaji manifested the palace so that he could get past it. So Kaivalapada is 34 sutras. Interestingly enough, it's written in a different kind of Sanskrit. Makes you wonder if it's by the same author or not. It talks about the various means of attaining the powers in the third pata, the process of creation. It talks about discernment and discrimination. And finally, the final phases of liberation. Okay, The last two things it says as we wrap this up, then all transformation correlating to time and space cease to exist for the soul. So once you have reached perfection, they cease to exist for you. That doesn't mean time and space ends, because if that was true, none of us would be continuing to experience it. It means for you, time stops. You step outside. Remember, time is not a line. Time is a field, a multidimensional field in which all things happen at the same time. The last thing it says is, without purpose, you no longer need the gunas. The gunas themselves return to the origin for the individualized soul. They cease to have any influence whatsoever. And then the soul remains steadfast in itself. So the final thing towards realization is we rest in self-knowing with the capital S. And that is the end of potentially Yoga Sutras. I know that was a lot in a single day, but it's hard to generalize to keep a framework all at the same time. Does anybody have any questions for me? Are you all okay? That was fast and furious, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we can, we're going to have more classes where we can take time and, and go over the padas one at a time. But this was, you know, a generalized sort of framework. So we have in pada one, it lays out, put it, so it puts it all together. No real specifics in how to do anything, right? It's just, here are the obstacles. Here's how to overcome them. Here's what yoga is. Pada two is, here are your steps. I'm giving you the power, the self-empowerment to transform your own consciousness. And here are the steps. Kriya Yoga and Ashtanga Yoga. Pada three, once you have mastered this, here's what you can expect to have powers. Roy always talked about not to get overly involved with any of that because he considered them to be phenomena. And he said two things about it. One is, he said, they will, if it happens, they'll happen naturally. You don't have to do anything about it. Have you all heard that story? I think it was Swami Rama or Yoganath. I can't remember which one. There was that yogi in India, and he could manifest uh, fire out of the palm of his hand. Have you ever heard that story? He could just, like that, one of the cities in fire would come out of his hand. And I think it was Swami Rama sought him out, and he said, let me see your power, great yogi. And the yogi, and this flame burst out of his hand. And Swami Rama asked him, how long did it take you to master this city? And the yogi said, oh, 20 years of my life to master this wonderful city. And Swami Rama reached in his pocket and pulled out a box of matches and he lit a flame. And he said, well, was it worth it? (laughs) So we don't want to spend too much time worried about the cities. The other thing that Roy always taught us to do was in meditation, no matter what experience we were having, he would say, always inquire, is there more? Right? 
If you can even make the inquiry, is there more? The answer is yes. Right? So remember the story where Roy asked Yogananda about how many saints have gone all the way? And Yogananda said, oh, not many. There's so, some saints are content to rest in the bliss for millions of years. That's our counsel against these powers that manifest. We don't want to get caught up in anything other than the end result, the goal. Right? So always inquire gently to yourself, is there more? Whenever I come across anybody with these sort of gifts or whatever, I think, oh, that's nice. You know, but do you know God? That's really all we care about. Do we know God? Okay. All right. So now we're going to spend a half hour together in meditation. Let's take a five minute break and we'll come back and we'll meditate together. Thank you for being with me. Namaste. I'll see you in a few minutes. Hello, everybody. We're going to spend the next half hour meditating together. I won't be leading you too much, but I'll just every now and then bring us back to center. So let's take our meditation postures, our Dhyana Asana, sitting upright, pelvis is tipped slightly forward so that you're resting on your sits bones. Back is comfortably erect, fixed and firm, chin parallel to the floor. We close our eyes and we raise them, looking out through that space between the eyebrows, Ajna Chakra. Take a deep breath in and let it go. Inwardly acknowledge that for the next 30 minutes, you are in your right place at the right time. There's nowhere better to be. Let us surrender our hearts and open our minds to the infinite that unbounded field of consciousness. Knowing that at the core, we are individualized units of it and that everything innate to it is also innate to us. Let us acknowledge this Kriya Yoga Guru lineage, Maha Avatar Babaji, Lahiri Mahasayaji, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, Paramahansa Yogananda Ji, Roy Eugene Davis Ji, and their successors. Turning inward, let your focus be on your breath for just a moment. Effortless inhaling and exhaling. Keeping our eyes raised. Looking at a distant star in the night sky. Looking out into inner space. Allow yourself to surrender to the infinite. letting the process spontaneously and effortlessly unfold. (laughs) 
Let's chant Om together three times. together dive deep into the silence knowing that the deeper we go the more subtle the experience and the more profound the realization inwardly we chant God 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 If you find your mind wandering, gently bring it back. Surrendered focus. Looking deeply into the third eye. Allow the process to unfold from within. Notice how that presence within you grows, blossoms. Ever supporting, ever filling that space within.
as we meditate deeply. Notice how there seems to be a motionless, effortless flow. As if we are going towards a direction without trying. We stay alert, awake, with dynamic focus. Surrendering to the infinite. Any false sense of a separate existence. Take a deep breath in, and with the exhale, release any leftover tension, allowing your breath to flow without effort. The quieter the mind becomes, the quieter the breath.
Notice how the quiet has a presence to it, a feel. Allow yourself to float in the ocean of consciousness, slowly dissolving in it until it is no longer you in the ocean. It's just the ocean. God, God, God. as we move towards the end of our meditation. Inwardly acknowledge the truth of your own divinity, that we don't have souls, we are souls functioning through bodies and minds. And in your mind's eye, reach out, envision the entire globe and all its inhabitants, knowing that what is true for you is also true for every other living being. Send them thoughts of joy, friendliness, equanimity. wishing for them their highest good. Acknowledge that we are on friendly terms with a friendly world. That our experiences in the world are but a reflection of our own states of awareness. Change our consciousness, change our world.
affirm aloud after me, that is, look deep in the spiritual eye and state out loud with firmness. I am very awake. And I awaken more every day. Let's chant home together just once. Divine Mother, Blessed Father, Beloved Friend, God, may your light shine steadily in the sanctuary of our continued devotion, and may we see this same light awakened in all hearts everywhere. Shanti, Shanti, Hari Om, Shanti. May absolute peace pervade the universe. May absolute peace pervade the universe. Namaste. Thank you all for being here today. I salute your steadiness and your strength and your clarity of mind. Uh, Thank you. Namaste.